you got your Bibles, we're in Romans chapter 12. We're gonna pick up where we left off last week. And if you remember, I said that the first 11 chapters of Romans, Paul lays down some thick, heavy theology. It's all doctrine. Then you get to chapter 12 and there's a change, there's a transition. Essentially what he does is he asks the question, so what? So what does all this mean? What difference did Jesus make in your life? And he begins chapter 12 in this way, the first two verses which we covered last week, but I'm gonna read them again because this is a setup to what follows in verses uh, three through eight. He says, verse one, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. So he talked about how this is the foundation for his strong appeal, his strong compulsion to his brothers and sisters in Christ. Consider the mercies of God. That's the motivating factor. So then, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. That's kind of that oxymoron. And basically what he's saying is, day in and day out, you almost get this sense that it's moment by moment, there are certain aspects of your life that crawl up on that altar and you slay them. It's the death of your pride, your arrogance, ego, maybe the hopes and dreams that you have for your life, submitting them to the will of God and saying, God, my life is in your hands. It's the death of your lust, your greed. All of the things that prevent you, watch this, from being holy, which means pure, and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. We talked about how that Greek word spiritual, interesting one, logikin, from which we get the English word logic. In other words, this is the most logical thing you can do. This is absolutely reasonable. Because not only are these things preventing you from being pure, holy, acceptable to God, these are the things that are making your life a living hell. Slay them. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed, metamorphosed, by the renewal of your mind, as a person thinks so they are, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God. What, what, what is the will of God, what's it like? Well, it's good, acceptable, and perfect, okay? First two verses. Now, what follows is, uh, is, is great help because Paul, Paul tells us how we can have our minds renewed, okay? This is the how. How do we do that? Well, it's very timely, very timely because we're all asking these fundamental questions in life, especially the younger generation, more so now. How should I think about myself? How should I think about others? What am I doing here? <laughs> you know, like, what's my purpose? We've all asked these questions. Paul says, for the Christian, the Bible has given us the answer. And by the way, if you're here and you're not a believer in Jesus, we're super stoked that you're here. You're gonna get some insight into what it means to live the Christian life. How should I think about myself? How should I think about others? And what is my purpose? All right, so here's, Paul's gonna begin with a positive and a negative. How not to think about ourselves and how to think about ourselves. Verse three, for by the grace, notice what Paul does. Earlier he's like, I, I need to just talk about the mercies of God as being the foundation for living for God. Mercy is you deserve something, you deserve to be punished, but that punishment is withheld from you. Consider that in your life, what God has done. By the mercies of God, I commit. Then in verse three, he comes back and he hits you with grace. And this is distinctly Christian. 
For by the grace given to me, and let me tell you something, if anybody knew grace, it would be the Apostle Paul, because remember who this guy was. Before he was Paul, he was known as Saul. He was on the fast track to becoming one of the elite religious leaders of his day as a Pharisee, just like his dad. Studied under the master teacher, Gamaliel. He had everything in front of him. Then he has this radical encounter with Jesus on his way to destroy Christians. He sought to end Christianity, and then he becomes one. Paul's like, let me tell you about grace, God's unmerited favor. <laughs> I know exactly what that's about. He says, for by the grace that was given to me, I say to everyone among you, church, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. Those words, more highly, uh, in the Greek, hyperphronane, hyperphronane, hype. In other words, what Paul is saying is, don't hype yourself up. Bring yourself back down. Think right about yourself. Um, you know people like this, don't you? They're so irritating. The people that walk around and they just carry that air of superiority. They're better than everybody else. I'll tell you what, aren't we glad we're not like them? <laughs> See what we just did? Oh, this pride thing is slippery, isn't it? I'm reminded of the story about the young man who is really struggling with this. His, his deep sense of his own arrogance came to light, and he just couldn't shake it. It was like affecting every aspect of his life. So he begins to think, what can I do to rid myself of this? I know. I'll, I'll make a sign that reads, I am arrogant, and I'll walk around the busiest intersection of the city just to showcase my arrogance in front of everybody. And maybe then I, I will experience humility. And so that's what he does. He creates this sign, parades around the busiest intersection of the city during rush hour, and people are honking their horns, they're yelling at him, they're saying things that are unkind, and he gets home and he's like, wow. He's like, I am destroyed. <laughs> He's like, that was so humbling. That was so humbling. He's like, I think it's working. And then his next thought is, you know, I'll bet there's not another man alive who would do what I just did. <laughs> Isn't that how it goes? It's insidious. And so, isn't this interesting? You know, there's a reason why pride is called the original sin. You know why? This is what got Satan kicked out of heaven, is it not? Read the text. What it says is, I will ascend to the heavens. I will make my throne like the most high. What is that? I'll take God's place. I deserve it. That's pride, the original sin. So Paul says, if, if you want to have your mind renewed, you've got to think rightly about yourself. Now, this is the beautiful, one, one of, one of the many beautiful things about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Gospel literally means good news. The gospel in the first century.
first century AD, you were immediately thinking of Caesar because gospel and Caesar were attached to each other because Caesar had a gospel. It was the gospel of Caesar. Caesar had good news he was bringing to everybody. Early Christians took that word gospel and hijacked it. They say, no, no, you don't understand. Caesar's not the one who brings you good news. It's Jesus. Everybody's like, wait, what? Yeah, Jesus also has a gospel, and it's way better than Caesar's, way better, because Jesus can do for you what no Caesar can. What is that? Die for your sins. Okay, this is good, because what happens is when the gospel of Jesus enters your life, right, it's the best thing and worst thing for you. It's, it's, it's when you start to think so highly of yourself when you sit, start to think superior thoughts about yourself, the gospel enters your life and says, no, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute. Let's just come back down to earth because you're a sinner in need of a savior. And then in those moments where you're like, I'm the worst, I can't do anything right. When you get those really awful, lowly, depressive thoughts about yourself, the gospel enters your life again and says, no, 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 wait a minute, you're loved. You're more loved than you know. See the beautiful thing about the gospel? It, it does for you what you need done. So that's why Paul says, if he begins by saying, I'm gonna appeal you by the mercies of God, and then he hits you with the grace of God. It's a great humbling factor. Instead, think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Okay, this phrase needs to be understood rightly because I think that um, innocently it's been misinterpreted. Uh, very often, uh, People take this to mean that we've all been given different measures of faith by God. Maybe God has given you a tremendous amount of faith. Well, me, he's given me just a small amount of faith. And so I'm destined to, to really never think rightly about myself, certainly not to think soberly about myself because the faith that God has given me is small, so too bad for me. But if you have a great amount of faith that's been given to you by God, then you, you have a better chance of thinking uh, soberly about yourself, thinking rightly about yourself, right? And, that, and that's... That's how some interpret this, um, as if sound judgment comes in degree to the proportion of faith that God has given you. I don't think that's what's being said here. The, uh, the, word, the word measure can also be translated as standard. In your job, there is a standard that you have to meet. Otherwise, you're gonna be like, oh, there's a certain performance metric. There's a standard. Some, 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 what is a standard? A standard is a level of quality. Okay? There's some level of quality that must be met in your job. You've got to meet that standard. So if we read the verse in this way, it opens up the meeting. Watch this. Think with sober judgment, each according to the standard of faith that God has assigned. Each one of us has a standard of faith that has been assigned by God. What is that standard? What is that quality? In a word, it's a person, Jesus. See what he's saying? He's saying the standard by which you and I conduct ourselves, it's already been established, and that standard is found in Jesus. The Apostle Paul understood this really, really well because he says this in Colossians chapter one. This is like his personal purpose statement. Him we proclaim, okay? we proclaim Jesus, and we warn everyone, and we teach everyone, to teach is to impart knowledge. With all wisdom, what, what is wisdom? Wisdom is knowledge applied, so that we may present everyone mature or complete in Christ. Why, because that's the standard. In other words, what he's saying is, 
This is the yardstick by which we measure, measure ourselves. So this is very, very helpful because the primary source of my pride comes in comparing myself to others. And there's always gonna be somebody who's a little less good looking, a little less intelligent, a little less successful than we are. Everybody can look down on someone. And so Paul gives great correction. He says, now you gotta think soberly about yourself. If you wanna play that comparison game, then consider the standard that has been set for you. Compare yourself to Jesus. And that will keep you humble. It's quite good. Nowhere in the Bible does it say, oh, you should estimate yourself based on how you feel. There has been a major epistemological shift in my, in my opinion. Epistemology has to do with the way we understand knowledge, how we know what we know. Philosophers love this stuff. In the modern age, Descartes well-defined it. I think, therefore I am. In a postmodern age, I feel, therefore I am. Do you understand what I'm saying? Now you begin to understand the ethos of the culture. It's not so much about facts, it's more about feelings. If I feel a certain way, then it must be true. Nowhere in the Bible does it say, just let your heart lead you. Instead, what it says is your heart is deceitfully what? Wicked. Nowhere in the Bible does it say, just be true to yourself. Rather, it says, be who God created you to be. That's why the opening lines of the Bible are very profound. In the beginning, God what? Creator. As the author, creator, and sustainer of all life, he knows how life is best lived. And when you live it according to his ways, your life opens up. Does it mean it's pain-free? No, there is no such thing as a pain-free life. But what it means is that even in your pain, you understand that God has higher purposes, and when you understand that God takes your pain and uses them for his greater purposes, all of a sudden you find meaning even in your suffering, and you can make it through. The Bible says, comfort others with the comfort you have been given. Don't estimate yourself based on what others think. Uh, this is, oh, I, I just, if I could have this, um, if I could have this impressed upon the younger generation's mind, if there were just a few verses, I think it might be this one, okay? From Paul, 1 Corinthians chapter four. He's gonna tell you what he thinks about himself and what he thinks about you and your thoughts about him. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you. He's not saying that your thoughts are irrelevant to him or what you think about him. He puts a little weight into it, but very, very small amount. Or by any human court. Let's talk about the society at large. Not that interested in what they have to say about me. In fact, I do not even judge myself. This is great. Sometimes you wake up and you're like, I am ready to take on the world. I am so on top of the world. Other times you wake up and you're like, the world is on top of me. We can be very fickle with our attitudes towards ourselves. And you know what he said? Look at what he says. I care very little about what you think. I care very little about society, culture at large, what they think. I'll tell you what. I don't put that much weight into how I feel about myself. I know this is just destroying the self-esteem mantra. 
for I am not aware of anything against myself. But I am not thereby acquitted. So he just says, when I look inwardly, he's like, certainly there are things that need to be fixed, but I'm not aware of, of the things that are that would condemn me necessarily. But then he pauses and he says, but you know what, Th- that, that doesn't set me free either. I am not thereby acquitted. Look at what he says. It is the Lord who judges me. And to judge is to evaluate. Uh, this is revolutionary. A- and it is much needed in our digital age where we are uh, competing for attention. And Paul says, I'm not playing that game. I'm just not gonna play it. It's not that important to me. I'll tell you what is important to me, what God thinks. And now now this is great, because Jesus is the standard. So let's place ourselves under that standard and what you realize, all of these beautiful things that are found in the Bible, forgiven, adopted, Loved, you were sacrificed for immensely. There's a profound humility that comes over a person who understands who they are in Christ. This then leads us, when we view ourselves rightly, then we can view others rightly. Because you're not consumed with thoughts about yourself. There's space to think about others. Verse four, for as in one body we have many members and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. So Paul is brilliant, great writer. This is a great word picture. Uh, Many different parts to the human body, but all of them are necessary and they are all needed to function properly in order for the body to do what it was created to do. You have this, they're all, they're different. Just within the human body, there's tremendous diversity. There's the outside part that you can see. Then there's the stuff that goes on the inside, which is super complicated. There's all this tremendous diversity inside your body. But yet, as it functions together in unity, the body does what it was meant to do. Paul says, now let's take that and apply it to the church. You all have gifts passion, skills. You all have different experiences in life. This room represents a wide variety. There's diversity here in background, in ethnicity, in economics, in education, in training, okay? Uh, By the way, the word university, I think I've mentioned this before, the word university is a compound word Unity and diversity, university. And it's the idea that in the midst of of all of these differences, these people come together and under the educational system, there is unity. And unfortunately, I think what's happened is it's not so much unity, it's uniformity. Unity and uniformity are two different things, see what I'm saying? But that's the idea of the university, is that you come together, all these diverse people, you come together. Really, if you look at some of the the founding documents of Harvard and Princeton and Yale and some of these other schools that started as theological schools, there there is this idea that under the banner of heaven, and and, and theology used to be the queen of the sciences, under the pursuit of God, all these cultural differences, ethnic differences, all of these experiential differences, you come together in the pursuit of the truth, and the truth will unify you. 
That was the idea behind it. That idea has gotten lost, I, I think, but it should certainly be true in the church. In fact, the word Christian comes as a result of the world looking at this diverse group coming together, Jew, Gentile, male, female, Greek, barbarian, groups that would never play together. And they're coming together and sharing a meal, which just wasn't done. It wasn't seen. And everybody's looking at the outside like, how do, what, what, how do we explain this? What is it that's uni uniting them? Oh, it's their Christ, their Messiah, Christian, little Christ. That's the only explanation for it. That's the etymology of the word Christian. Uh, is, isn't it interesting that just before Jesus left this planet, he prays for you and me, future believers. In John 17, of all the things he could pray for, he lays it down. I do not ask for these, these disciples only, the ones that he's currently living with, but I also ask for those who will believe in me through their words. So as disciples spread the message of Jesus, it gets to us. So he says, I'm not just praying for these guys, I'm praying for the ones who will believe because of their word. That's us. He's praying for you and me. That they may all be one. Well, in what sense? Well, it's pretty tight. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. That's total and complete unity. So that the world may believe that you have sent me. So there's a purpose to it. That the world may believe that Jesus comes from God. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them. That they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. So basically he says the same thing twice in two different ways. Our oneness is what the world looks at and says, you know what? Unity might be possible. Unity in this world actually might be possible. If it is, what's the unifying component? Jesus. That's why shared faith is so so important, uh, Paul says, we don't all look alike, we don't all sound alike, but can you imagine how, how, um, how hideous that would be? What if we were all eyes? We'd just be looking at each other. What if we were all hands? We'd just be waving at each other. What if we were all noses? We'd just be smelling each other. What if we were all mouths? Well, we'd just be talking at each other. See, when you attempt to make unity and you don't have diversity, it leads to monstrosity. When you attempt to have unity, but you don't have real diversity, it leads to monstrosity. So that's why Paul says there really should be nothing like the Christian community because we are individual members of one another. In other words, we need each other. I need you. I need you to function as God created you to function within this body so that together, the corporate body, can do what God designed us to do. Are you doing it? I tore my ACL at the end of 2022. And for three months, I could not put any weight on my left leg. So what happened was, 
my right leg carried all the weight. And then gradually, the left leg started carrying a little bit of its own weight, yeah? Maybe 10%. But then by about six, seven months, it was probably at about 75%. But for almost a year, it wasn't 100%. So this side of my body had to pick up where this side was lacking until my body could be unified in its health. Paul says, this is how it is for us. Uh, This is why you need to be in Christian community. And and I talk to a lot of people who are like, you know, I just feel so stuck, pastor. Like I'm reading my Bible and I'm praying and I'm attending church, but I feel stuck. And I'm always quick to ask, okay, are you in Christian community? What part of the body are you? And are you functioning well? Because God uses three things, four technically, if you wanna add a fourth, to grow us and mature us. He uses his word, he uses his spirit, prayer, and his people. And if you're outside of Christian community, I don't know how else to say it other than don't shoot the messenger. You're outside the will of God because that is literally what Paul is talking about here. You have a role to play. Uh, In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul paints this beautiful picture. He says, when one member hurts, we all hurt. When one rejoices, we all rejoice. But the key is to think rightly about yourself. Understand the mercies of God, the grace of God. Uh, Understand what the gospel does for you. And then get involved, verse six. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, this is all God's distribution and doing, let us use them. You see, what? there's the command, use them. Then he's gonna give some, list some. If prophecy in proportion to our faith. Prophecy doesn't always include information that was previously unknown. John the Baptist, for example, comes rolling out of the desert, and this guy was really gnarly looking. You know, he's like wearing old school clothes, and he's been chewing on bugs, and he's just kind of a, this wild looking guy, you know, and he's literally, the Judean wilderness, kind of like what this desert Southwest is like. So this dude just comes rolling out of the desert, and he's like, Hey, everybody, got a word from God. He did not give any new revelation. Did you know that? John the Baptist never did. Instead, what he did was he consistently reached to the past of the Old Testament, and he's like, hey, remember what the Old Testament saints said to the people of God? Repent, get right, get right. Don't play God for the fool. I'm carrying their message. No new information, but he functioned like a prophet, essentially saying, get right with God. If service... In our serving, the Greek word here describes men and women who waited on tables. They were like servers. By the way, if you've ever been in the fast food industry or in the restaurant industry, you know it takes a great deal of humility to do this job well. Everybody wants to be a servant. I wanna serve you, God, until people are like, "Um, my food isn't cooked right. Um, Can I have water with lemon? Oh, um, 
hey, come here, can you fix this? If service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, primarily, not exclusively, but primarily teaching involves the imparting of knowledge, like I said. In order to do this, you need to understand the scriptures well. This is why Paul writes to Timothy. And he says, here, here you go, young man. Uh, you're the next generation. What, here's what I have to tell you. Be diligent. In other words, work hard so that you wouldn't be ashamed. Ashamed of what? Because you don't know how to handle the word of God. Be a workman. Present yourself approved to God. In what sense? Well, you know it. You know it. And if you, if you can't teach it if you don't know it. Verse eight. The one who, by the way, when you, the, here's the important thing about teaching and teaching well. Teaching the scriptures is one of the primary ways that the flock is fed. And that happens in a lot of different contexts. It's the primary way. So if, if a pastor's flock is malnourished, it's his problem. This is why it's very important to sit under solid biblical uh, teaching. Those, uh, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, I love these people. These are the people that come alongside you and they speak life into you and they kind of carry you along. Um, it's, it's, like, uh, it's like when, you, when you're teaching your kids how to ice skate you know, and you, you're, you're next to them, you're holding on to them pretty much every second. At least that's what Jill did because I cannot ice skate. I look like I'm 6'5 I'm with ice skates. I'm like 6'9. I'm afraid of heights. I've told you that before. If I was any taller, I would give myself a nosebleed. I look like a baby deer that's just been born when I put ice skates on trying to walk. You know what I'm saying? Someone who exhorts comes alongside and gives comfort and help. These are amazing people in the church. The one who contributes in generosity. It's interesting, there's actually a warning here because the word generosity refers to simplicity. So in other words, what he's saying is when you give, do it simply. Don't make a big deal out of it. Jesus talks about this as well. You know, don't let the left hand, right hand know what, what's, what's going on. Don't be like the Pharisees who stand on the street corner and they make everything public to be seen because they love the show. Just be simple. There's a story in the book of Acts where these two people did it wrong and it didn't go well for them. The one who leads with zeal. Okay, this is leadership. Let's talk about leadership. Things rise and fall on leadership. And... Uh, whether you are lead pastor or you are a small group leader, what he's saying is take it seriously. Be zealous about it. Um, be prepared. Be prayed up. Don't wing it. Good shepherds smell like what? Sheep. Know those whom you are leading. The one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. This is, uh, this is rich. This is the ability to give relief specifically to the downcast and the marginalized in particular. The sick, addicted, um, abused, suffering. The one who does acts of mercy, do it with the root word for cheerfulness in the Greek is from which we get our English word hilarity. Be happy about it. I heard it said once, there is no room for a defeated expression in the church. Should we find one, we bring God's sunlight to their face. Okay, so here Paul mentions seven beautiful gifts. And these are, there's, it's not an exhaustive list, but I like what he does. It's quite good because I would say 
that in this room and in, in between the next two services, every single one of these gifts is manifested at this church, okay? You want good news or bad news first? Good news, I'll give it to you. Here's the good news. We have everything we need and more to be all that God has called us to be. We have teaching, exhortation, prophecy, giving, mercy. This church is loaded. That's the good news. The bad news, you're not using it. It's like I said during our our last campaign, I said, you want the good news? The good news is we have all the funds in the world. We have more funds than we need to accomplish God's purposes here. You know what the bad news is? It's in your wallet. Am I, tell me I'm wrong. This church has everything we need. Come on, come on. You know the exhortation from Paul? What does he say? Use it. Use it. And be blessed. And build unity. And people on the outside will look and go, this is what Jesus prayed for. There's something there. Can't put my finger on it. I want to be a part of it. Father, I am so grateful that you have blessed us, specifically this community, with every blessing. God, will your spirit continue to move in the hearts of your people, myself included, to exercise, to use the blessings what you have given to us so that this body can be built up and and God, that we would experience your good pleasure on our lives because we see ourselves rightly, we see others rightly, and we understand why you created us. And when we live and function in that, there's nothing better. It's, we're in perfect resonance with how you created us to be. We're so grateful for that. The blessings just keep coming. God, as we end our time, as always, I pray that your spirit would speak to each heart in the room. Lord, for those who may be far from you, for those who don't know you, pray that you continue to draw them. Nobody is here by accident. I pray that they would, even in this moment, have an overwhelming sense of your love for them. That's, that's been proven by Jesus' death, burial, and sacrifice, sacrificial death, burial, and his resurrection. We ask all these things in his name, the name of Jesus Christ, and God's people said, amen.